Hello, welcome to Guru Live Glasgow and to this masterclass, directing masterclass with Douglas McKinnon. Hello. Supported by NFTS. Um, we're releasing podcasts of today's sessions plus original content over the coming weeks. Details of all of our platforms can be found on the BAFTA website, so please check that out. Tell us about your day. We'd love to see your highlights. Tag at BAFTA Scotland on Twitter using hashtag GuruLive and follow BAFTA Scotland on Instagram and share your snaps. Whew, I can read. That's good. Uh, yes, welcome today. Um, Douglas McKinnon is an internationally successful director of um, feature films and very big TV dramas. Um, he's worked on Outlander, Sherlock, Doctor Who, um, and the upcoming Good Omens, which is one of the most hotly anticipated shows of 2019. Um, we're going to look at three of those shows in a bit more detail um, in the next hour and a bit. Um, and I want you to think of questions to ask Douglas at the end as well. Please don't leave me hanging when I ask if there's any questions. Think hard. Um, but first of all, I think what we'd all like to know is how you made it from a schoolboy on the Isle of Skye to the director of multi-million pound drama series. Give us a potted history. Really, really slowly. Um, well, in Portree, I did... My mum, actually, is no longer with us. <coughs> she started off a Friday afternoon activity thing in the school in Portree for nursery schools, and it was so successful that they had to introduce Friday afternoon activities for everybody else, because um, not everybody wanted to do nursery school things, so I did photography. Uh, and that was the start of it, and then I went off to Napier and did a disastrous uh, business studies course that I failed miserably after a year. Um, just terrible. And I went home to Sky for the summer, and uh, <coughs> I basically was having a good time and my, my sister was working in the job centre in Inverness and a, this thing came up, a, 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 a YOP scheme, which I think you did a YOP scheme as well, didn't you? I did. A Youth Opportunity Programme, which basically means, it was kind of like an apprenticeship where you get 69 quid a week and uh, maybe a bit of help with your boarding as well. And it was with a press photographer in Inverness and that's, I went off and did that uh, and it turned out he was trying to get into the National Film School, which I hadn't heard of. Um, a guy called Blair Urquhart, who eventually graduated from it as well. And uh, so I, I did that for a while, and I just found my feet straight away that photography was the thing that I loved. I loved doing it. And I, I came down to Glasgow and went to the College of Building Printing here. Uh, it's not called that anymore, is it? It's is called, it still? I don't know what it's called, but it's, it's the big building in Hanover Street anyway. Yeah. But I was trying to get into the National Film School, and eventually, after three, four years of attempts, got in. Um, as a documentarist with a documentary about a couple of crofters in the Isle of Skye. One was handing his, an old man handing his croft over to a young guy. So it was kind of a very observational documentary. And, but then I left with a graduation film called Ashes, which was a fiction film, again set on Skye, that um, Andrea Calderwood uh, was production manager on. And there was all sorts of people working And who's Andrea Calderwood, please? Andrea, Andrea is an uh, Oscar-winning producer of... Uh, what is it, The Last King of Scotland? Last King of Scotland. Yeah. Uh, and we set up a production company with a, with a, a, a woman called Kate Swan, who, who's, who some people in here will know. And so from that, we, we started... We decided not to have a, a, um, a production office 
And the one thing that we did was we bought a seat at the GFT to sponsor it, and it's still there, Crash Films. If you ever wondered what, what Crash Films was, that was us. And we made a run rig video, because I knew them, uh, and a, we, we, we made a couple of films with Bobby Carlyle and everything. Then Andrew got the head of drama at BBC Scotland, and I, I, I carried on working. So the, to cut a long story short, I, I, I came back to Scotland after I graduated and was doing items for Edinburgh Nights and uh, Music and Arts, and also a, for the Gallic department as well. Sort of high volume, two to three minute pieces. Just on straightforward, yeah. Entertainment, Bring your own factual props. entertainment shows on the BBC. Yeah, anything, yeah. documentary kind of things, you know. Um, and I made a series about poetry in 1990, and, but then was always hankering after drama again. And so I made a, a film that Andrea produced, uh, called Sherlock, with, with, a, with an unknown actor called Peter Mullen as, as the lead. Uh, and and that, that Gaelic short set on Sky in the potato farm in the 1840s got me episodes of The Bill to do, which, you know... How, how do you make a short film and use that short film to bring yourself to the attention of the people that can give you jobs where you can actually make money? So... <clears throat> pre, pre, um, you have to be kind of brutally self-promoting, uh, really. Um, so basically, uh, uh, there was no, no no internet in those days. So basically, I got I got a hundred VHS copies made of this short film, and basically looked at the end of all the television programs that I liked and or thought I had a chance at, and sent them out to everybody. And most of them are probably still unopened now, <laughs> but one of the producers of the bill saw it, and I like to think uh, that it was the storytelling was the key to it that he saw storytelling rather than a, a, an obscure Gaelic film. Uh, and, and that's what he told me anyway. And he gave me a go at the bill, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the bill, because you're all quite young, you were probably all embryos when the bill was... Yeah. It's a long-running cop show, isn't it? Yeah. And on ITV. A, and it's single camera, so it's fitted my sensibilities well. Uh, and it got silly audiences. I remember I had an audience of 18.6 million for one episode of the bill in the January and 78% of the viewing public watched it that night. That's, that's a weird feeling, you know. Uh, so then I carried on jumping backwards and forwards between Gaelic stuff mostly and doing stuff here in Glasgow and then ended up, you know, doing the nine o'clock shows like uh, Soldier, Soldier, London's Burning. I, I seemed to go through a phase where I was doing all the big shows that were just about dead. Killing uh, them all off. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I, I love you know I killed off Taggart. Yay! Eventually, yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Taggart was good. good. Um, no, and, and, and so really I jumped on that bandwagon and, and, but kept on bringing back it. In the audience is Paul Young, who's my favourite actor in the world. It completely still is. And Paul was one of the ones that I took with me on that little journey. He, he was in Soldier, Soldier. He was in all sorts of stuff that I did. He would turn up and we'd have a few glasses of wine and... It would be good fun. Oh, nice. Paul made a fishing show with my husband as yeah. well, didn't he? Yeah. Okay. Um, Paul's our favourite. Yeah. Did you, in that journey, which is basically hard work, isn't it? It's hard mm. graft. Yeah, it's doing lots of episodes. Did you ever feel like giving up? Yeah, a lot. And when, when I, you, you used the plural world when you said feature films. I only made one feature film so far, a, The Flying Scotsman. And that made me want to give up because it was so, such a terrible experience. Um, and so, in lots of ways, and yet, it it got me um, a series called Jekyll, which uh, uh, which Stephen Moffat wrote, <coughs> and um, it's it, what's, what's, we'll, we'll probably get into this a bit more detail. But it, I, I've got this philosophy now that about audiences is that 
it's really lovely if you get a big audience, uh, and it's really lovely if you get you know, awards and appreciation and everything else. But my philosophy is basically that my target audience is, is one producer sitting somewhere with a script that they've got off the ground, that they watch it and they go, oh, this guy could be the guy for us. And Jekyll, which um, was in, in the time when science fantasy was, was not popular in the world at all, you know, and you know, faded away into obscurity, although Stephen Moffat's son, Louis, annoyingly for Stephen, keeps on saying to him, it's the best thing you've ever done, why aren't you doing that <laughs> again? Ah, uh, and there was another person watching, Neil Gaiman, which, uh, who, who I didn't know until I started working Good Omens. Mm-hmm. And Neil quotes Jekyll as being the thing that he saw, that he thought, oh, that's the thing. That's... So the feature film that you made that was a hellish experience yeah. actually resulted in you coming to the attention of Stephen Moffat, yep. who, of course, is writer, producer, showrunner of... Doctor Who, and well, then Sherlock. wasn't quite at that point. Yeah, but became but coming, so. And I'd actually got hired to do Torchwood, and Stephen, when he heard that, said, said um, you shouldn't be doing Torchwood, you should be doing Doctor Who. And I'd also worked with Russell T. Davis on a show called The Grand, which was his first show for telly as well. And the, the, it all sounds very uh, uh, easy, like there's a little family of people that you just follow around. And the truth is, that, that's how life works. Yeah. But and it isn't easy because you have to work really hard, don't you? Yeah. And you have to work hard and be a fantastic person as well and make connections well, all along the way. Great, great friends don't ask you back if you're directing crap. Of course. They don't. So they it just has don't. to be both, doesn't it? It makes it harder to say no, but they will say no. Yeah. You know? So if, you don't, if they don't like your directing, you're knackered. Yeah. So you do have to do the directing thing as well. As, yeah. you know, and I, I encountered Russell before he was Russell. You know, it, it was his first show... Uh, that he'd, um, that he'd done for grown-up te- television, The Grand. Uh, and that was a really important one, because it was the first, for me, because, well, it's the first time I'd led a series as well, so I, I, mm-hmm. I got to, you know, work on the style of it and everything else. And it, mm-hmm. The Grand was done as a, a bit of cheap telly, because Granada, uh, who were huge at the time, had some days left that they had to fill with crew. So we were put in a, a shed behind Granada that used to be a costume shed, and we had three sets... And that was it. We didn't go outside at all on location. Uh, so we had a bedroom that you could change by changing the number on the door and a reception area. Uh, and we had a, a, a bit of a kitchen for underground as well, you know, for the Forsyth Saga sort of stuff, upstairs, downstairs kind mm-hmm. of thing. So that was the restrictions. And, and we were only allowed nine days per ep to shoot. And it, and it all had to be in that space. So you're learning a lot during Hugely, that process. Yeah. What? Well, Bef- yeah, I mean, the... The, the great trait with working with somebody like Russell is that he's clearly everybody gets it now, but uh, we, we knew it at the time that he's one of the great storytellers in the world. So you kind of go, oh, OK, this guy knows what he's doing. You yeah. know? and that was pre-Doctor Who for him as well. And how important is story? I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of aspects everything. of being a director, but yeah. story? It's everything. Story is everything. The script is everything. I don't function without a script. I'm, I'm not... Um, I say this to producers when we start working on something. So if you, if you think I'm going to impose a vision on it, then you need to go to somebody else. And there are people who do that, you know, the Paul Greengrasses of the world, to great success and good luck, you know, to them. It, it's, you know, work is work and that's great. But for me, I, I, I want to get the vision that's in the script out on the screen. And, 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 and that, that involves digging into, uh, digging into the writing and digging into the writers as well and not, and not pushing the writers aside. I, I, I want the writers back in, you know, in, in the room with me when I'm doing the, cho- the choosing, because it's, it's their head that's come up with this stuff that we're doing, you know. So, so when a script comes to you, what is it that you're looking for in that script that will make you attach yourself to it as a director? Getting to the end of it. 
is a big thing. Because um, I, I, I read scripts. Come on, the... we need more profound than that. Yeah, well, it's, but it's true. I, I read scripts all the time, start reading them and put them down after five pages and go, oh, okay, I'll come back to that and then don't come back, you know, sadly. Um, with, with Good Omen, with, well, with, with Sherlock and uh, with the Doctor Who, uh, both were either, either co-written by Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss or, or by Stephen. And with Stephen's scripts, uh, you don't get any extra drafts with, with his scripts, you just get the script. So that thing about, about doing 12, 28, whatever drafts, with Stephen Moffat, they turn up and, they, and it's just there. So you just go, okay. Yeah. The challenge is to realise that. It's not to, it's not to affect it and everything else. There's a great quote from, and this is, this is to do with actors, but it's to do with writing as well. Because <clears throat> unless you've got a powerful writer like Stephen or, or Neil or, or Russell guiding you, and, and unless you have a bit of power yourself, all sort of manner of people try to dive in to change stuff, including the actors on the day. And it was, I can't remember who it was, it was in the 40s, a writer has been challenged by an actor uh, about a line, and he said, "Where were you when the pages were blank?" Yay, nice! And I think I think writing's everything, and, and therefore the story is everything. So I, what I look for is to get engaged, really, and and to be immediately seeing it rather than rather than working out the flaws and, and being stopped by something, or, or feeling like you've seen it before. Or I, I want to sit down and engage with the script, mm. and it's that very first read that I try and do. Um, and, and you open each script, really, hopefully, you know, but you, 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 you try and, I try and gather that into my head because I know that the, if, if I do this project, then there'll come a day where I'll have to remember that first reaction because I am the audience at that point. So, so we, like I say, when you're working with Stephen, his, his scripts are always so late that you just have to get on with it, but luckily it's because they're great. And, and he's got this thing where he says... It's better late and great than, than early and a bit shit. Yeah. I think there's quite a lot of quite bad storytelling at the moment on the big budget shows on Netflix and Amazon, aren't there? Like they've yeah. got everything thrown at them yeah. and then the story hasn't been, been worked out properly. But story is ultra important. This is true. And, and uh, the, the good news and the bad news is that, is, is though that they're, they're, you can judge for yourselves, which is there's, there's not lots of people out there that can do it. So there's lots of opportunities. If, if, if you can tell a story well, mm. um, in pictures as well as, as, as words, that's, that's a bit that I, I, get, I get worried about all the time, is that writing is very often about, people think it's just about the words, it's about the pictures for me as well. Bill Douglas is one of our great um, and late um, directors. Uh, he, he used to say, uh, write only what you see. I get a lot of scripts where people are writing stuff down and you can't know it. You know, they'll, they'll say... Let's say a character walks into a restaurant and he's a judge. And I'm going, so how, the, how do the audience know this bit of information? He's wearing his wig. Wearing his wig or something, you know. You need, you need to write down on the page. What we um, I was listening to uh, Jed Mercurio this morning on, on Radio 4, and Jed, we'll come on to this perhaps. Uh, Jed, after uh, uh, Flying Scotsman happened and I'd, I'd got some work, uh, I was in really bad debt. He said, I'd use credit cards to keep myself going uh, and just really was terrible. But before the, the, the feature film, I'd, I'd done a couple of episodes of Bodies, which Jed's, was Jed's hospital, last hospital drama. And it was Jed who came and got me out of this problem because he, said he, phoned, he, he got in touch one day saying, what are you up to? I've got this series called Line of Duty that I'm on the go. You'd be the second director. Are you interested at all? And I went, yeah, okay. 
Um, I don't know what happened to it. I think it, I think it turned it's out good. okay. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> um, before we watch a clip of Sherlock, um, last sort of question um, about uh, your journey. At what point in that journey do you get an agent? And how does your agent help you? Uh, it's a good question that, uh, that with agents, uh, I, I got my agent, um, so Filmbang, which currently exists on, uh, online. Uh, online, it used to be a book that we all carried around with all the people in Scotland, um, pretty much all the people in Scotland in it, <laughs> and, and it listed what you did. And there was only one person in that book that had an agent, um, and that was Bill Forsyth. And he just put care of Peter's Fisher and Dunlop in, in London. So that was the only agent that I knew. And luckily, Bill had put, put the address in. So I sent one of my VHSs to his, his agent and got his agent. At what point, though? What was that VHS? Uh, film school. It was actually my film school graduation film. Oh, it was your film, film school graduation <laughs> yeah. film. Amazing. And they took, they took me on at that point. So it's worth, if you've got a great graduation film, trying to get an agent at oh, that God, point. I, I, think, I think agents, uh, I think in different ways, they're, it's, it's, over, it's overestimated. As, uh, uh, the importance of them. I, I, I don't... See, I've also signed to CAA in the States now, which is a different scale of event, which we can talk about later if anybody's interested. But, and they're, they're sort of... They're a mad agency, you know, because they're huge. And, uh, but I've, I've had three agents in the UK. I've, I've gone through Peter's Freeze and Dunlop, left them to Curtis Brown, and I'm now with Independent. I think I went to Independent because I, I felt at least if Scotland wasn't independent, I could say I was. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I'm, I'm, and, and kind of I think if you if you if you live in Scotland or anywhere else in the UK, <clears throat> for me my agent in London is kind of my is, is my ears on the ground and, and and it's just somewhere for people to go that that, that if they're looking for me, um, and and it just means that I don't have to live there because I, I live in Fife, so I don't have to live in London, which is a great bonus, you know. On Outlander, sorry, I've got too many stories. On, on Outlander, I, I, I had a great um, exec who's from New Orleans, and she said to me one day, so what are you going to do next? I said, I'm not sure, I'll go down to London and everything. And she said, oh, I've not been to London. And I, it was just like, it was like, what? You know? Yeah. Somebody who's at the top of the, 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 the tree in broadcasting and, and making television who doesn't have to go to London. You know, and I, I drove over from Fife today and passed the, the studios and everything. And it's just like that's a little beacon in, in Scotland. It's such an important series that, and, and I don't think I don't think maybe you do appreciate it more, but I don't think the Scotland appreciates what that thing is doing for Scotland and for our industry. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's they like have a, great trainee schemes, oh, don't they? And they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're just such amazing people, and they they care about the place. And you know, and one day they'll go, but you know, they're going to leave behind hundreds and hundreds of people in our industry that have. You know, yeah. you know, and a good studio. It's and a, a great studio. studio. Yeah, 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 fantastic. Okay, so we're going to show a clip of um, Sherlock, the abominable bride, and then I'll ask Douglas a few questions about Sherlock. So Sherlock, um, it's small chunks of series, isn't it? Is it three at a time? But it's a well-established. This is a one-off. A one-off, one okay. Yeah. But it's well-established in terms yeah. of it's the same writers, it's the same cast, it's the same tone and style. Yeah. Yeah. How do you as a director sort of simultaneously make your mark on something but slip into an established groove? Well, uh, remember I'd worked with Hartswood before who make, make Sherlock. I'd worked with Stephen on Doctor Who and Jekyll and I actually directed one of Mark Gittes' episodes of Doctor Who as well. 
So I, I wasn't completely new, but I remember the first productions. <coughs> so Susie Lavelle, who is, is uh, the DOP who did Sherlock and got Emmy nominated quite rightly for it, who I'd worked with on Doctor Who. Um, and, and I uh, went to our first production meeting with Sherlock, and when I came out, I said to her, you realise that every HOD around that table has won an Emmy for the show. <laughs> and we're going in and going, oh yeah, we're new, you know. Uh, and Benedict and Martin kind of know what they're doing as well. Uh, 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 so, I mean, basically you go in and, you, and you, 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 if you want it, you have to go in and, and be yourself. The thing I always say to actors, and I remember saying it to Benedict and, and Martin, uh, was basically this, that, you know, I know you know the characters, but this is the story. So I'm, I'm going to bring in the story and, and talk to you about the story again uh, and, and, and because this was kind of a unique episode that they actually went back to um, you, you know we, we, we did it mostly as a Victorian piece you know and that, that little scene the genius in that writing is just so perfect it's it, you know it's jumping in and out of fiction and into another fictional world and, and yet we're also representing Sherlock and Holmes as uh, Sherlock and, and Watson as, as, as existing in their own t- it's just so complicated just that scene which is why I chose it, because it, it just shows how complex writing can be. But <coughs> I, I, I basically had to go in and do a reboot of the reboot. So what, what Sherlock is famous for for the first nine episodes is having, having taken you know, Victorian Sherlock and made it modern. So basically what Stephen said to me is, we're going to take all that away from you, you know, all, all the flashy texting, all the style and everything else, and we're going to make it like it was you know, uh, for the other 137 versions of it. So this was actually very different from the other Sherlock. Very so you different. were able to put your stamp on it. So yes, but you're also you're also dealing with a brand that is um, exceptional and and is one of the biggest in the world. The one thing that they hadn't won uh, by by this point and haven't since was the Emmy for the best single film for Telly, which it did win. This one did win. So so Susie and I came out thinking, oh, okay, we've got that one. You know, yeah, that's um, brilliant. But 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 that but that rebooting was really fascinating because. We, you know, whereas we live in a, in a world that aspires to be wireless, one of the things that I looked at was how wires were a big thing in Victorian times. You know, people were sending telegrams five or six times a day in London, and and, there, and it was to do with the way that it was, it was. They were using them like we use texts. You know, see you for coffee at half past two at such and such a street. Mm-hmm. A telegram would just be sent. You know, and and so I got into the technology of the time, and we we also David Arnold, who did the music for Good Omens, does the music for Sherlock. He completely reconstructed the, the music at the front. So there was, there was, that was very entertaining. Uh, but going into a big show like that, you, you are looked at sideways, you know, to start with, because you're the new guy, and, and you kind of... It's not to do with proving yourself. It's, it's kind of more to do with, you know, what, why are you the next director, and can you do it, and is it, are, are we going to be OK? You know? So you need confidence, I guess. You need, confidence in... You need confidence. Even when you don't have confidence, you need confidence. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you have to go in and everybody knows you're new. You know, on my first day at the Bill, uh, I, I was in pre-production, but they were filming, and I, I went uh, to watch them filming and in the police station set, and I, I leaned against a action was just been called, and I leaned, leaned against a column, and it fell over, and, and everybody turned around to see the new director standing there. <laughs> so the lesson was learnt there. Try and go in a bit more confidently than that. And, to, to create that fantastic Victorian feel, who are the, HO, the heads of department that you spend most time with and what is that relationship like? What are you talking about in prep? Yeah, everything is the answer. And what, what, as a director, what you're doing is you're trying to bring coherence to the thing, all the things, because 
all those very confident HODs with the Emmys, you know, on their shoulders, have uh, all got views on it. And what you're a mug, if you're if you're if you're directing a director mug, you'll you'll try and again take over the place uh, instead of going to the designer Arwell, you know. Um, so what what's your thoughts? And he had mountains of thoughts, you know. And to the costume designer, what you know, and and you you're, you're kind of chaperoning your story through, and that and that's the input you have. Uh, but also you're the you're the one that has to turn up on the day with these shots, and so that little sequence. So the first bit with the news vendor, there's a whole pile of CGI hidden in there. The background it was it was in reality Piccadilly Circus now, and we had to wipe all that out. And then in in the scene outside um, a, a Baker Street, which is shot in North Gower Street, we wanted to use the same building as they did for the uh, the contemporary versions. So that whole street that you see with all these carriages, that, that's a whole CGI constructed shot, which, you know, when it comes off the Baker Street sign, that, that it's, it's real for about 25 yards and then it's all CGI and constructed. And we only had three carriages total. That's really well done because I didn't notice that yeah. at all. I remember showing that shot to, when we were still working on it to my daughter Ruby and it comes off the thing to this amazing thing. And I was, she was about 11 at the time and... and uh, I said, proudly showing the shot, and she looked at it and she said, there's not enough snow, Dad. Yeah. And she was right. And we put in more snow. Huh? And, and it worked better. You know? yeah. so, uh, but, that, but that construction of that shot, I mean, to be able to do that, it partly comes from Doctor Who, that I know we're going to talk about in a minute. Doing, ben Wheatley came and did a couple of Doctor Whos and he said it was like director's boot camp because you're dealing with, on a daily basis, a... Uh, uh, a whole new world every time, you know, either, either one or two episodes of it, and you have to cope with everything like a, like a brand new feature film, and make it look as as, as wonderful as it does uh, as American shows do now. Well, let's have a look at a clip. So let's just dive straight into the budget question then, because yeah. Doctor Who, I think, has always succeeded in making fantastic looking shows on really limited resources. Mm. As a director, how do you work with the production in making sure that you're making a show that you're proud of, that has everything in it to yeah. tell the story on a limited resource? The, the, the key is exactly that phrase, working with the production, not against them. Um, and, you know... Um, Having a great producer that, that understands the show as well. Uh, there's a couple there that I've worked with a few times. Um, it's great, but also Stephen and you know Chris Chibnall now and and Russell before him all understand the limits of the show and and will 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 not set you really crazy tasks. But they, but it's pretty crazy. But really, it's finding a way to, to to tell the story with the resources you've got. So I look at that sequence there and I see when River Song is lifted up by the robot. In, in, in Doctor Who, you, 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 you couldn't afford to get her, get her on wires and actually see her lifted up full length. So it's her feet, then she's leaning on something, and it's her head, and she's standing on something. And, and so, um, you, do you know what I mean? So, yeah. so you're, you're using very old-fashioned film, filmmaking techniques to give the impression that something's happening when it's not. Yeah. And that can be good or bad, you know. Um, but but there's, th- there's also things like you, 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 you get your own obsession. So I, I love... With Doctor Who, particularly uh, obsessing about the show itself and about its whole its, its whole background. So I, I remain really proud of the shot at the end there, where you see the Doctor and River coming out of the TARDIS, and you see that the TARDIS is huge inside. And then you 
come round and you're in that ballroom in one single shot, apparently. But actually, that box of suitcases in the middle is a wipe point. So they were done in two different locations, and, but it gives the flavour to the audience that you've come out of this ridiculous thing called the TARDIS and then you end up in this ballroom. So, and it, I, I like to think I was one of the first to do that, that actually proves that the TARDIS is big inside, you know, by showing it and not, you know, not, not cutting around it by... For the exterior and is that an idea that you had and you discussed with the DOP how to yeah, make that work? Yeah, and it's, most, it's mostly, uh, you, you take the script, you find shots, and great shots are not enough. They've, it's got to tell the story as well. So the, the, the great shots are, are put to one side. If, you know, I've got a thing on set that I talk about all the time, which is, you know, because people are always coming up to say, you're saying there's a shot from up here, there's a shot from here, you know, especially if it's an expensive set. The executives do that all the time. Um, and my, my response to that is, where's the story, though? You know, in the, in, the, in the cutting room, you'll want the story. You won't want the expensive set. You'll have forgotten about that, the pain of building the set and, and how hard the day was. And that, as a director, that's another one of your, for me, big jobs is to keep on remembering that the cutting room is coming. And if you don't have the, if you don't have the story told, when you're in the cutting room three months later, you'll be the one that's crying. So you can have all the jaw-dropping shots in the world, you but do, do you, you don't like. have the story you don't have the story. Stuffed. If the story in this room is about these two glasses and you've got a wide shot of this lovely room with all these handsome people, um, the, the, you know, everybody's going to be going, I thought it was about the two glasses. You know? So if the camera's down here, instead of being up here, you're, you're on the glasses with them in the background. Then, then you get both. So I try and do both. And I try and, you know, I, I, hate, I hate some phrases like uh, establishing shots, but I do them all the time, but I hide them. I try and hide them. So it's, I, I call them storytelling shots. I want to, I want to cutaways. Uh, crews start taking the mickey out of me very quickly because so we're not allowed to do establishing shots but there's a good wide shot over here no it's not it's a story shot you know and 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 if you put those those rules on yourself then the crews follow you you know and and so it's it's but it's back to storytelling all the time and do you choose dops because that's probably one of the best the, the most important relationships partly do you choose dops that are good at storytelling and understand script yeah, yeah yes uh, uh it's changed for me in the last few years. When you go into a big show like Outlander, uh, which I can't remember the name of the DOP, and that was Neville Kidd. Oh, yeah. yeah. What happened to him? Yeah. She's married to him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I'd worked with Neville before on, on a Ford Kiernan project called Happy Holidays, which is our finest hour. Oh, era. man, don't mention that. Don't watch that. <laughs> no, please watch it. <laughs> uh, but uh, going into Outlander... Um, I, 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 it wasn't my choice to have Neville. It would have been, but it wasn't. But I just, you just get the DOP, and you've got established sets, and you've got established... So, so, but if you go in with story as your objective, even in established sets, and the TARDIS is you know, a classic example, mm-hmm. you'd, you'd think every shot had been done on every TARDIS yeah. by now, but it's not. You, know, you can find, if you dig into your story, you'll find a way to shoot the thing differently. And it's balance. It's all, yeah. it's all a balance of stuff. When Doctor Who first started, VFX was really expensive. It's obviously got cheaper as mm. time goes on, but um, they didn't allow very many VFX shots in Doctor Who, is that right? And what was the balance of VFX and in-camera <coughs> well, on this well, programme? The, f- the first Doctor Who, and, and th- th- things have changed, as I say, the first Doctor Who I did was David Tennant. Um, Russell T. Davis wrote it with... Um, Helen Rayner and uh, Russell had put in all six CGI shots that, that we could have in the script so that was it so there was no question and, and they were all exterior spaceship kind of shots you know so Russell had written them in 
by the time I did, uh, you know, my last episodes that I've done so far of Doctor Who, we had, you know, 100, 120, 140 CGI shots of different kinds, some that are just pintouts of wires and cabling, <coughs> but others that are, are sort of, you know, it's much freer. But Doctor Who still, in Doctor Who we have a, a, a day when you've made all your plans called the Dream Crushers Meeting, where basically <laughs> your CGI shots are reduced down to what you're allowed rather than, and you kind of have to stick with that. Good Omens is a different thing because we've got a much bigger budget, uh, which is where you start talking. So on a bigger budget, it frees you up in some ways, but you can also get indulgence. Uh, so that's a danger. It's a danger in the other direction. Um, was that head shot? Was that CGI or was that just a head and that, a prop? So, so what, a body and a prop. So, so uh, some, sometimes when you, you're, you're working on a show like Sherlock or Doctor Who, so the shot of Baker Street was my one big Baker Street shot that we had an entire show, you know. Um, with Doctor Who, in an earlier scene when we first meet Greg Davis's character, there's, there's a moment where you see the head actually coming off when that was CGI, and you see his head being put down on a table. In that, in that scene, however, um, he was sitting underneath the TARDIS console, just sitting, he's a big guy, so he was sitting like this for hours on end. It was very funny. So maybe on good, if that had been in, in Good Omens, you would have been able to afford to make that whole thing CGI, yeah, and, but that's and, a compromise you had to come to. And in Good Omens, I, 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 I would have started with an expectation that the head could be moving, that the head could be carried around. We had a couple of shots earlier on when Peter Capaldi lifts up the head in an earlier scene, again, to establish that that's, and it's kind of done, to show that we can do that. It's kind of, but it's a cheat, there's no doubt about it. Whereas in Good Omens, if I was doing that scene with Good Omens, River would be lifted up off the ground, and the head would be, be able to move around with him talking and everything. So you could, you could play with it. Does it make it better? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I like that scene a lot, you know, and I like Sherlock a lot, you know, and I love Good Omens. So it's kind, it's kind of, you, you know, as a director, you take the resources you've got in front of you. When when I was doing my graduation film for the film school, more waving happening over there, um, a, which Paul Young was in um, as a minister, and he caused because. I was terrible trouble because he was playing a minister. We were filming on a Sunday in Sky and, and Paul thought it would be a great laugh to go down to the pub. Thanks for that, Paul. I'm still remembered for that on Sky. Dre- sorry, dressed as a minister. That was the key thing. Um, but the, the, the graduation film, um, it had limited resources, but we, you, you make it work. You have to... And if, and, and if it can't, on Good Omens, there, there's a scene where we didn't... We, we, Neil had written a new scene that's not in the book, which... Um, involved going to the, us going to the Globe Theatre and, and being at the right time period for um, the first week of Hamlet. And it was a huge success and it was crowded and Crowley and his earful, David Tennant and Michael uh, Sheen's characters sort of meet, meet each other in the crowd. And we got into the Globe, which is remarkable because nobody's filmed there before <coughs> in, in a fictional sort of thing, but they could only give us five hours. And I said to Neil, we can't. We, it's, it's, the, it's the extras that are killing me because to get them in and out and do crowd replication shots, whatever. So Neil said, well, what if we did it slightly differently? What if it was the first week of Hamlet and a, it was a dud and it wasn't working and nobody turned up? And the scene's so much better. So we've got Michael and David in the middle of an empty Globe Theatre with a few extras and Ruth Shearsmith, who I know was here this morning, turns up as Shakespeare and he's in a crisis because to be or not to be isn't working. And it's a much better scene. Yeah. So, so, you, you, so we're actively doing the same thing as you do on, on a low-budget short, saying, we'd love to do this, but we can't. And, and it's Stephen Moffat who said, said to us both that on Doctor Who, what you do is if, if, if you cut back down, the philosophy is, um, if, if somebody says you can't afford to do that thing, make the thing that you replace it with better. 
and then you won't feel pain. Make it better. And, and, and my whole philosophy on Good Omens, and it will continue, there is no plan B, unlike the government. There, oh, no, exactly like the government. There is no plan B, there's only plan AA. So we go from plan A to plan A. We go for a better plan, not a worse one. I like that. Yeah. So you very uh, helpfully jumped into Good Omens, which will please the waving woman at the back. Um, but let's just go back a little bit. But sh- shall we say that we're going to jump past the trailer? Yes, yeah. we shall. So we did... We're not going to show you a trailer. You can watch that online. Um, I, we are going to show you a couple of clips from Good Omens, though. Um, and before we do that, I have to just say that this is highly privileged uh, viewing for you guys. And please do not film it or tweet about any of the content that you see. You're the only people in the world to be seeing this content before... I shall hunt you down. Before it it goes out. We will know who you are, because it'll be pictures from here, and nobody else has done it. (laughs) So... Yeah. I wasn't going to be threatening, but... Uh, Well, I can't... But but please don't say anything specific about what I'll destroy your career if you do. (laughs) Is that encouraging? (laughs) But but before we get to the clips... um, can you tell me how you ended up as director of um, Good Omens, which is from the book by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett? Yeah. And actually, you're the director of all six episodes, is that right? Yeah. Which is unheard of. Yeah. Um, for a series of this scale, it's normally a director per two eps, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it would be. So tell normally. me how that all happened. Uh, I got, it was my son's birthday, about two years ago in February. Okay, quickly now. And... Uh, uh, it was it was the 18th birthday, so a big day for us. I was at home in Fife, and I got an email from the executive producer saying, do you want to read Good Omens? And I went, yeah, but I'm not going to read it just now. And she said, oh, I'm, I'm here with Neil Gaiman at BAFTA in London. Have a look at it and see what you think. And I said, it's not going to be tonight. You know, it's, I'll, I'll read it, thanks, but it'll be in the morning. You know. So anyway, so I sat down, and you know that thing I was saying about it being hard to read scripts? So an hour later, I finished the script um, at the kitchen table, and was emailing her, saying and phoning her and texting her and saying, "Tell everyone else to off. Uh, this is this is mine. I'm, ha- I'm having it." And that was because of the story. And it's because of the story. And uh, 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 any script that starts with uh, exterior Garden of Eden day is a good one for me. Yeah. So let's show that clip. Here's the Garden of Eden uh, clip from Good Omens. amazing. It looks absolutely amazing. I can't wait to see that. Um, first question I have to ask you is that you've obviously made some very bold choices. I think it's fantastic you've made Adam and Eve two black people. Yeah. Incredible. You also have Frances McDormand as the female voice of God. Yeah, she did now, good work. I think. In, our, <laughs> in our sort of artistic circles, that all seems pretty par for the course. But, you know, that's maybe going to play differently in Redneck America. I mean, what, what were your thoughts around the kind <coughs> well, of choices a, that you I, made? I've got my script and actually I'd written uh, what Neil told me about that. He said, um, while I have no doubt we'll offend our, our share of people on this show, I feel we should always do it intentionally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's kind of my attitude as well. So I'm an atheist brought up in Free Presbyterian country and sky. Um, I know my Bible, and the thing about thing about Good Omens is, it takes the Bible very seriously, and and we don't we don't we're not doing it to mock the Bible, uh, but the, but the premise of the show is that the Bible is actually real. It's it's not a work of fiction or myth. It's actually real. That God does exist. It happens to be Francis, but it, God does exist, and that the, these events actually happened four thousand years ago. So um, 
and the angels are around us right now, you know. So, uh, but it's done by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. So it, 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 you kind of you kind of have to embrace it to do it. And uh, Neil and I, who spent the last two years together, pretty much, uh, we 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 call it good omensness. You know, there's a good omens thing, and it's the same with all shows that I work on. And from the bill forwards, uh, when when you get the essence of a show, and Doctor Who and Sherlock are more obvious examples. When you get the essence of it. Don't, don't try and push it away. You have, you have to embrace it. So with Good Omens, it's the first major adaptation that I've done and I wanted to embrace that book so much and what they wrote 30 years ago together. Um, and so I carried the book around because I, I, I never had the luck to meet Terry Pratchett, but I had Neil with me all the time. So again, it's digging into that story and that structure and being bold with the book. So if you're going to do... I don't know what the coy version of Good Omens would look like, but I wasn't up for doing that. And that, that was the reason... You know, I. I I, I, by no means did I get the Good Omens job just like that, just because I was saying, um, you know, I, I want to do it. We went through a huge process with Amazon where I had to do huge pitches to them with, with photographs and with, you know, ideas and what the photography was going to be like and what, who the DFP might be and designers and everything else before I got signed up. So it took months for that to happen after that first read. Um, but I also knew that what I wanted to do was, was make this thing that I'd read and... and so I just went for it. And the difference between Amazon funding a show, and uh, I haven't worked for Netflix directly um, yet, but Amazon basically say to you, how much do you need to make this great? Which is a very different philosophy than the one that I'm used to and that we're all used to. They, they, want, they want a great good omens. So we try and try to give them that. And yet, we, we were, there is no difference between directing you know, Michael and David and... Uh, and directing anything else, it's still, in the end, you've got people turning up on a set with a camera, and that space is just the same. And so you're left with the script again. If Good Omens uh, is a success, <coughs> then that'll be great. It'll be to do with the script and the story. Where do you get your inspiration for the tone and the visual style? Um, I read somewhere that yeah. Aladdin Sane, David Bowie's Aladdin Sane was an inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. So my, 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 well, I started off by saying, telling Amazon that the, the tone is, that the, there is no tone. And, and Neil remembered Jekyll, and uh, the, the tone for Jekyll was similar in that. And it's, it's Stephen's writing as well, that it switches, and Doctor Who and Sherlock, and uh, Dirk Gently, which I've done as well, that, that they all have moments of intense seriousness and then incredible comedy as well. And my attitude towards tone is, is to not try and smooth it out. It's to actually just aggressively take it on and just go, that's one moment in, in the life of a character or, or the story, and that's another one, and we just go for it, you know? So the tone is there's no tone. But with Aladdin saying what I did for all my HRDs as a sort of guide <coughs> was I first of all played them a... a, a, a the, what's the David Bowie song about Mars? The life on Mars. Life on Mars, which has got a Rick Whitman... Rick, Rick Wakeman a piano solo on it and Rick Waitman said it was the best piano solo he ever did and, and the next day Bowie asked him to come and be in his band but he, he went with Yes instead this is all stuff way before your time and it's beautiful, it's beautiful if you listen to it but I said but that's not us Good Omens is a, the piano solo by Mike Garson on Aladdin saying, which is go, go and listen to it and you'll listen to the two and it, it's kind of an eclectic jazz avant-garde thing where David Bowie apparently said to him every day, every time he went for it, make it madder, make it madder. And Neil and I both said to all our HODs, what we want from you is 
uh, an email, emails and ideas that start with a sentence, this might be insane, but... And that's what I wanted from everybody. I want... Because I, I think if I've got a skill now, it's that I can push stuff right out to the edge and make it nearly ridiculous, you know? With, with, with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, who's, who's also in Good Omens, playing the voice of Satan. Because um, we figured with Francis, you have to have somebody who's quite good opposite, you know? Uh, but with Benedict, I remember standing with him in, a, in the costume department, and we had the Sherlock magnifying glass, we had the, the, the hat, and, and we had the pipe. And he, he put the pipe in and the, had the magnifying glass and put the hat on. And I just sort of said like that. He said, what? I said, it looks shit, Benedict. You know, it looks really... It looks, it looks like you're in a French and Saunders sketch. And he, and he looked in the mirror and said, you're right. You know, what could we do? We've got to do that. And so I, I just sort of said, put one down. You know, and he put the pipe down. And I said, now it works. And so the, the, the edge for Sherlock, even with Benedict doing it, one of our greatest actors in the world. He couldn't handle three props that, that, that took you into a, a, a spoof. And we had to stay serious. So that was our edge. And we referred to that all throughout the show, the making the show that tone. But, but, you know, where's the three prop, where's the two prop thing? And with Good Omens, it's the same thing. How, how, do, you, how do you make angels on a wall at the Garden of Eden look right? And, and the, the choices you make about casting Adam and Eve it seemed really obvious to me that they had to be black, and it was to Neil as well. You know, they just had to be. It would have been, we'd have got laughed out of school for that, you know. Uh, and, and, and Neil's fond of saying, we get the offence in really early, so if people don't want to hang around, don't stay for the crucifixion scene in episode three. <laughs> <laughs> Which we do have. <laughs> oh, great. Um, so directing actors... Of that stature, yeah. you said it's just the same yeah. as directing actors. Better. Better. It's more fun. Uh, cause, so, so a question I get asked quite often is, what's it like um, telling Benedict Cumberbatch or Francis McDormand what to do? And the answer is you don't, because they turn up with their skills, uh, which are amazing. It's like, it's like uh, you know, they're, they're all Stradivariuses. They're all amazing, you know, and, and you know, have the tension that having a Stradivarius around would have, and without naming any names of any of the, the group that, groups of people that I've worked with. They're all amazing creatures that, that do something extraordinary, and my job is to protect them and let them, let them be, and let them bring the thing to the set, and not try and change it or stuff it or flatten it or make, you know, Michael Sheen is not gonna turn up not knowing his lines. He's gonna turn up with his lines, so is David. Um, they've got very different styles of, of acting and pre preparation. Uh, they won't mind me saying, uh, you know, my, Michael is a, a control freak over everything he does. David comes in much more free range. So my job is to let them both exist on the same set and, and, and get that goodness out of them. Um, and just let them be and protect them and yeah. look after them. And was there a lot of green screen filming on Good Omens? Yeah, I presume there was. Yeah. So how do you get actors to feel like they're in the zone when they're actually in front of a green screen? So, so and this is an important thing for anybody who's directing, uh, in the audience, uh, you've got to make your own path about how you direct. But what I do is, uh, I, I clear the set for rehearsals. I, I don't let any work. Go. I mean, literally clear the set apart from myself, the writer if he or she's around, and, and the script supervisor. And that's it. Me and the actors just have five, ten, fifteen, as long, as long as it takes for them to feel that they can play a little bit at the beginning, and then we show the, the entire unit, um, and then we talk about the shots. So what I'm trying to do with the actors is say, is just tell them again and again, no matter who they are. And, and indeed, indeed the, the, the more experienced the actors, the more, the, the more they like 
having that moment of protection where they can just be safe and, and do it. I mean, they're, they're not fighting lions apart from Adam's case, but, they're, they're, but, but you should make them feel that they're, that they're the focus of attention. And I get more worried about um, the, the guy that's got to come on and do one line. I call, I call him the triangle guy. <coughs> so, you, so Good Omens is trundling forward. We had 106 days of shooting and we're day 86, whatever. And a guy's got to come in and do one line and just say it's over here at the end of a scene. So it's like the guy playing the triangle in an orchestra who's just got one thing at the, at the end of the entire <laughs> symphony that just goes ding. So he's, he's standing there for an hour and a half waiting for the moment and getting more and more nervous. So if you're turning up on a set with Michael Sheen, David Tennant, Derek Jacobi, whoever, and, and a whole bunch of other people that we had, Jack Whitehall, and, you know, Miranda Richardson, and you're that, that man or woman, that's the person that I look after on set. The other ones are grown-ups, but still have to be looked after in a different way. But that, those are the ones that I, I direct, you know. And can you very quickly, in one minute, tell us how you construct, say, that scene of the desert with the lion approaching Adam with his torch? How do you construct that scene? Look, you, you've, you've got to... It's a, it's, it's a whittling down process to find the story again. And, and uh, So the lion was shot in, in a green screen in um, uh, Oxfordshire. The, the, the Adam and Eve were shot in South Africa, Cape Town, on that sandy place's rail. And, and the wall that they're standing on is a wall about the size of this stage, uh, and the rest is CG, um, and, and so on and so on. And so you're, 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 you're gathering elements as a director in, in the sort of shows that I'm working on just now. And it's just, it's what's... What's particular about it is that it lands really late, and by that I mean the images don't come together till the very near the end of post-production. Whereas if you're doing Line of Duty and you do an interview room scene with Kelly Hawes, when the day's finished, you know you've got it or not. Do you do storyboards? I've got a, a person, Mike Collins, who I use for storyboards, and that's a really good focusing thing. And it gives there's two or three functions for it. One is the real one, which is I sit with Mike and we'll talk through sequences and. It, it, it sort of focuses me into what the story is mm. <clears throat> and I've got all the elements building as, as we, we talk and he draws but he goes off and does a bit of his own thing the second function is to give comfort to the money because they look at them and they think you know what you're doing <laughs> but the third one which is the one where all the crew stand around at breakfast time and go right this is what we're doing today never happens never happens Nobody, you get piles of storyboards sitting in the cupboards never, they never look at them yeah. I don't mind that it's a process that we're all engaged in. Um, you ran a, a mentoring scheme during Good Omens, didn't you? Mm. Could you just quickly tell us about that? Um, and then we have to move to questions, I think. We've oh, we need to show the firewall clip. We'll show that while they yeah. think of questions. Yeah, because um, I think it's my favourite scene in Good Omens. Uh, that, um, basically, I decided that it, we, we were in a big sort of mess in production at the beginning of it. We were losing producers for various reasons and everything else. But I wanted to do something that would address the, the, the problem of diversity and the problem of, of the lack of women directors in, in, in the UK in drama. So basically, instead of making it formal, the, the first four or five people that came to me, who all happened to be women, they came and shadowed me for a week or two or a few days here and there over, over the whole shoot. So we, 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 and we also had a, 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 a director who happens to be a woman doing our second unit work as well, Tracy, who's, who's trying to is breaking into major tilt, has done casualties and stuff like that. And that was just an active choice of mine. And I just, I just invited along, along as guests. And they were all of different abilities and, and um, stages in their careers. One woman was is a documentarist of some repute. Another was a, um, a, 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 
I don't know why I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about telling, telling you her status in life, but it doesn't matter. She hadn't done any filmmaking, but she came along and has now made a short film of her own, right. and it's, you know, which is great. Well, I think that's brilliant because we're nowhere near 50-50 female male directors and anything that no. anybody well, can I, do I, to help yeah. address that balance. I'm, I'm really straightforward about it. I, I, I think the BBC, which is our you know, public-funded corporation, should just have a, just a straightforward quota that 50% of all directors are women. Yeah. Just, I don't see what the problem is. I agree. It just I should agree. be, just, let's just do it. Yeah, so bear that in mind, everyone. Yeah. We need more women. Right, we're going to play a second clip from um, Good Omens. When you're watching this, think of questions, because I'm going to go straight to questions after the clip. Oh, that is amazing. What fire. Right, do we have any questions from the audience, please? Yes, over there. Hi. So, what? Yeah. I, I was just wondering how religiously you stick to your shot list when you start filming a scene and if you approach it, because so many of your shots are moving, do you know exactly that that's what you're going to do or do you get some coverage of kind of simpler shots and then do... Uh, coverage is another one of those words that I don't believe in, um, which causes producers a lot of pain. Um, so I, 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 I try and arrive planned, but then also be able to be organic at the same time. And a, a lot of the shots are moving. It's partly because we can do that now on a, on a budget. You know, our, the, I'm not allowed to tell you the, the budget of Good Omens, but the sort of range of budget that these shows are made in is about five or six million pounds per hour. Um, and that lets you do stuff that you couldn't do before. And, and, and CGI is evolving really fast. So even a few years ago, you'd have been told you've got to lock off the camera and, and not move it, whereas now people just go, yeah, okay, it's fine, you know. Uh, and that's not all to do with money, it's to do with technology shifting its, its gears up as well. So I, I, I go in with an idea, but the big thing I go in with is, again, is the story. And, and, and I want to... If it, I remember when I was doing Taggart, the, the brilliant Blythe Duff telling me, telling me about the Taggart 2 shot, which basically it was a shot where she stood slightly side-on to Alex Norton at, at the end of a scene, to do dialogue that would fit the frame the, 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 and, and they could get through a scene really quickly like that at the end of a day when you run out of time. And you try not to do that, but you've also, you've also got tricks and things that you can do. As, that I'm not hiding from you, but it's just that they, they're part of the individual scene that you're doing. So go in with a plan, but be adaptable. If somebody comes up with something on the day or you see a shot, a thing appearing, you've got to shift with it. There's no, again, I go back to the, there's no point in walking away with a, a, a crap-looking scene because uh, the cutting room won't like you. And you won't like yourself. Here. I just wonder, do you do storyboards? Do we need the mic? Yeah. Um, yeah uh, do you say you do storyboards? Are there any other tips or tricks that you use to get yourself completely into that story before you get there on set? So Richard Lester came to the National Film School who, who directed... Uh, Hard Day's Night, and he, he gave me a brilliant bit of advice, a, a group of us, that he said what he does is he, re he rehearses the scene with the actors, so it's two, two of us, um, and then uh, when he's finished that bit that I explained earlier, he, he, he asks them to run it one more time and tries to stand in the room where he can see what's happening best, so if it's over there or whatever, um, and he said that's often a good idea, that's where the camera should be, if you're standing in the right place to see the story. That's fine. So any amount of fa fancy shots won't satisfy as much as that very simple thought of just what's the story. And, and the, the prep is, 
getting the scripts right before you start before you start prep. And that doesn't always happen to me. You know, Stephen Moffat's exceptional. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people that I've worked with, not recently, but a long time ago, uh, the scripts turn up and they need more work and everything else. But try and get the scripts as, as best as you can so that when the actors turn up, you're not talking about the flaws in the scene. You're talking about the, the scene. You know, try, try and get yourself in that place. That's, that's, the way to, so that's the biggest tip. Other than that, it's just be the audience and imagine yourself into the cutting room and what shots you're going to have when you sit down. You know, there's, there's no point in having 32 amazing shots if they don't tell the story. Come away with five, five good ones. You think visually, obviously, don't yeah, you? Yeah, all the time, yeah. yeah. And you're, look, you're, you're also looking for something that nobody's seen before all the time as well. I mean, with the TARDIS, I, I, I got bored with how it looked, so Susie and I knocked a hole in the roof of it and we got an 8mm lens and went really widened it and, and we tried to get that platform taken down so nobody else could do it but everybody loved it straight away so you're, you're constantly looking for something that is not does the same thing like, like I was saying establishing shot but does it differently and, and refreshes it for the audience so they don't feel like with Doctor Who that they've seen it before you're going oh this is and it doesn't mean to say that they know what that is that that, that super wide shot is different but um, yeah any other questions somebody up the back there. up the back uh, a big Hi. question for you. Uh, you probably go up for jobs yourself now that you kind of don't get. Do you have any advice to deal with, with rejection from the industry? Say, I can't hear you properly. What was the question? I'm saying um, you, you probably still get knockbacks for jobs at your level. Mm. Do you have any practical advice for us up, up and comers to deal with this kind of rejection? Yeah. You've, you've How do you deal with rejection? <coughs> yeah, yeah, you've got to deal with it, really, I'm afraid. I, I, mean, I was actually talking to my daughter Ruby in the car the other day. Because uh, I'm, I'm up for a, a ridiculous job at the moment, and uh, I've got to do lots of research on it. And what I said to her, I'd say to you, is, is you've got to enjoy that knowledge gathering um, for itself. So when you get a script that you, you love, and so, so you go and do the research because you love that, that thing that you're doing, and you gather it together, you know. And you know that, this particular job involves wa watching lots of uh, animation, so it, it's kind of. Uh, and I just lo I've loved doing it, and I, I'm doing it with Ruby as well. She's watching it as well, and I get her a 14-year-old uh, girl. I was going to call her a woman, but girls taking it as well, because uh, it's 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 an upending of some of these images, and and you know which follows on from good omens. But it's it's just love the research. That's what I'd say. Uh, so that when it comes to the moment where somebody phones you and says um, you're you're from the Highlands, you're a man, and uh, we want a woman who's from London, or whatever whatever the reason is. You, you just go, oh, well, I've got, I've got that stuck. And it will come back. It'll come back to you. So you've got to go in positively and not feeling that... The, the worst thing an actor can do um, is come into an audition, and it's the same for directors, come into a meeting about a project and, and, and somehow give the feeling that they're not confident or they think they're going to not get it. You've got to go in. You've got to bullshit your way in, I'm afraid. That's what you've got to but do. It is a really good question because I think a lot of people starting out get really put off by the mm. rejection and mm. they can't take it and they give up too soon. We all are rejected all the time, all the time. aren't we? 95% yeah, yeah. of my job as a producer is rejection yeah. from financiers. Yeah. And you've just got to have tough skin and just you've got, get you've, on with you've, it. You've, you've, got to say, you've got to say to yourself, they're wrong for not taking me or that the job's not right for me. That's the only way you can deal with it. You know, I, I mean, I've, I've got a fantasy Oscar-winning speech where I go, go up on stage... <laughs> And, and I say, uh, I'm dedicating this to all the people who turned me down. Yay, nice. And, uh, and, that's, and, and it's kind of, but you know, the, the people that turn you down, it means it's not right for you. It's just not right. It's just not, 
the, the, the things haven't, it's, it's, it's just the same as casting actors. You can't, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, you know, and it, it, and it really isn't, it, generally speaking, isn't personal. It's, it's much more to do with the, a producer who's traveled with a, a thing for five, ten years is looking for their director and they meet five and they have to pick one. It's just, you know, so you can't be sore about it and you can't display the soreness or, or be bitter or twisted. And I, I also think it, it's the same with actors. The, the, there's a big sort of thing just now with actors that I understand completely about getting feedback after they fail an, uh, an audition. I don't see the worth in that because you've got to move on quickly. We've, you've got to. You can't... The, 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 it's just not, it's not personal. No, it's not. Yeah. I think we have time for one final question here. This better be a good one. No <laughs> pressure. Um, I just uh, wanted to know about just the development process of Good Omens in terms of the length of time it took between um, filming the thing and actually getting it out. Because from what I hear, it, uh, it was actually shot quite Quite, uh, was, it, when, was it like a couple, a year or more? Or so? we, we, shot, we shot from September 2017 till about March last year. Right, so, I mean, that huge sort of development process, what, what is involved in terms of... Well, that, that was the filming bit that I've just described. So before that, we had a, about three months of pre-production where that's when all the HODs start arriving one by one, production designer and DOPs and all that stuff, director of photography and so on. Um, but before that, Neil Gaiman had spent two years writing the scripts on his own in a room in his house in Scotland. Uh, and I know we're in Scotland, I'm just not telling you where it is. <laughs> uh, but that, that's, he, he went off and did that. And at that point, um, he, um, he handed over the BBC and, and they said, we can't afford to do this. And that's when BBC went to Amazon. But before that, there had been literally decade, 30 years of trying to get a good omens off the ground. Ter Terry Gilliam was attached for seven or eight years. The BBC tried to do it as a kind of sitcom thing, like Hitchhiker's Guide, which would have been terrible. But, but you know what? It's, it's, a, it's part of the same answer as I gave to the, the man at the back there. The, the, the omens actually came together as, as, as the face of the industry was changing into a place where Amazon were around and could afford to fund good omens at the level it needs. We, you know, we think we've made a six-hour film. That's what we think we've made. Uh, and I don't know what Terry Gilliam would have made. I never read his script, but it would have been a different thing from the thing we've made. Ours is very faithful to the book. Um, and indeed, uh, Neil promised uh, Terry Pratchett before he died that um, that's what he was going to do, and that's what we've tried to do. And, and the, ver the very last credit in, in Good Omens is, is for Terry. So that's what, that's what we've done. Oh, so, nice. so, so I just want to say this one last thing. I know we have to finish, but the, the thing that is the more important than story, if there is thing, is a thing to get something, to make something great, is that you have to love it. A thing made without love will be dead. So you've got, you've got to love your short film, you've got to love your longer film, you've got to love episodes of The Bill, you've got to love episodes of... of you've got you, to love that corporate video. You've, you've got to love the corporate video. I, you know, I've done so many uh, items for the Gallic department and in the BBC, and you've got to pour yourself into those moments, you know. I, um, but you've, but you've got to love it, because if you don't love it, what chance do the audience have, really? They don't, they don't stand a chance. If you haven't poured yourself in, the audience will just watch a dead thing. Thank you, Douglas. <laughs> Thank you.